0: Listening Dog Media.
1: Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. this episode of the offside rule exclusives we speak to one of the most recognizable names in women's football Hugely respected as a defender playing at the top of the game for over 15 years, Casey Stoney has earned well over 100 caps for England, as well as winning numerous domestic cups, league titles, a European silver and world bronze medal. After retiring from a career playing for the likes of Chelsea, Arsenal and Liverpool, the former England captain became Phil Neville's number two, coaching the Lionesses, before taking charge of brand new WSL side Manchester United women. The Offside Rule Exclusives with Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper. Well, for this episode of the Offside Rule Exclusives, we've come all the way up to just outside Manchester to a place called Lee, and uh, we're at Lee Sports Village. Um, about to speak to a brand new manager in the women's game at a brand new club as well. Casey Stoney, welcome. Thank you for having me. We thought we'd just sit down and have a really lovely chat with you today because we've known you for years. We've obviously followed your career for years. Myself and Lindsay here at the moment, and we're sat in a box in what looks like a really lovely stadium. And that echoes how seriously this club takes women's football, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I knew when I applied for this job, I wouldn't have applied for it if I didn't think Manchester United were going to take it seriously. you know, because they took so long to come to the party. I think when when they did come in, everybody knew they were going to do it properly. Um, like you say, you're sitting here, fantastic stadium, amazing facilities. Um, and I have to say the most integrated I've ever felt as part of a club. Because you've been at a fair few
1: clubs and we we will look back on your career in a little bit more detail. But just looking at your rap sheet, I suppose, you know, Chelsea, Arsenal, you're at Charlton when women's football was a very big deal at Charlton. So you've been around a fair few clubs and you know what you're talking about when you talk about integration. There's still a lot of work to do at some clubs, actually. But are we going in the right direction with that And what more needs to happen? What's the next stage now? If we're just going to take a quick look at women's football and say, okay, this is how we're integrated at the moment. What's the ideal for you?
2: I think for me, I look at the the whole of the sport, you know, and I went to a conference recently and it was a staggering stat that of all sponsorship in sport, only 1% goes to female sport. Now, without money and without investment, you can't grow the game. And if that's 1% to female sport that's probably a lot less into female football. So that's one, you know, that's for me, that's a huge area that needs to change because with investment, you can grow the game. We've got a full-time professional league now for the first time ever, which is a huge statement. You know, if we can get two leagues uh, uh, near that, then we'll start growing the game even more. I've seen huge changes since I've been at Manchester United in terms of the support we get, the level of support, the attention to detail on the marketing, the strategies, the commercial. Has that happened really quickly then, that that, that
1: I guess fans of the men's team have, Cottoned on to what you 're doing and how well you 're doing it, and
2: have jumped on board quickly they have there 's been quite a lot of transfer that 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 we have we don 't just have female you know, football supporters here. They're not just women's team supporters. They they support the men's game and the women's game, which is great. And that's one thing we try to not do is ever play at the same time. Because otherwise you, you're counting out fifty percent of at least at least your audience. So yeah, I think people have cottoned on, but I have to say what the club had already put in place before I even took the job was incredible and support staff they've got involved and, you know it it hasn't taken an awful lot in terms of finances, but what they have done is resourced it really, really well in terms of the staff that they've put in place and the job roles they've added on to people's roles that they've already got. And because they've been doing it for so, so many years so well at the men's game... They treat it exactly the same on the women's game then they deliver in the same way. And that's important. You've got two daughters, you've Mm -hmm. got Tilly and Willow. So for them coming through now,
0: although there's a long way to go, the prospects, if they wanted to follow in mummy's shoes, are that they're going to have, hopefully, a a professional career, but an easier ride, essentially, because it's been quite a tough one for you. I think, let's go back right to the beginning. Mm -hmm. I would love to know what sort of child you were, first of all. (laughs)
2: Probably a pain in the back, Simon, my mum would say. I think if you were a young girl growing up when I was trying to play football, you had to be very resilient. You had to be a strong type of character. You had to be a character that didn't care what people say, said because you were told every single day that girls shouldn't play football, couldn't play football. There was hardly any opportunities to, to play. The barriers were huge. And I, I suppose I was too stubborn to listen. And I actually thought I was good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, to play you know the boys never stuck me in goal they always picked me on their teams I loved it it was a game I loved and I'm I'm a massive believer that you don't let anyone tell, tell you you can't do something and you know, and I was really lucky that I had the support of my mum and my dad. Parental support is huge, mm. you know, because if your parents tell you you can, you believe you can. If your parents start questioning that or your mum says, oh, no, girls don't play football. Or your dad says it, then you're going to start to believe that, too. And so I was I was really, really fortunate in that. And I grew up in a cul-de-sac where we played, We put jumpers down for goals and we played all hours. And parents would call us in when it got dark and, you know, we'd, we'd fight to stay out. So, you know. One of the things I said when I got this job and I met with the 21 players was the big thing for me is trying to change the face of women's football so that my two little girls grow up with the same opportunities. They might not ever get the same money. I'm a realist. You know, we don't draw in as many fans, but all I want them to have is the same opportunities. And I believe football can speak to society and society is changing. And I think football can add to that in terms of equality. So I go back
0: to primary school and I was about nine years old and I was that girl that I played with the boys for a bit. Um, I loved playing football and there was a little group of girls as well in my year group that used to stand on the steps near where the football was being played and they, they sang songs from Greece and that was what they did and they were that was the girl thing to do and that was what the boys were doing. And I played with the boys for a little bit and then I cowered and I thought I don't want to be called names. I don't want to be told that I'm playing with the boys and not with anyone else so I went and sang Grease songs for a while uh, so that quite well. <laughs> badly <laughs> so the mentality even as a child I know that you're saying you know you had to learn to just get on with it but that wasn't an easy thing for you to do I mean you openly have spoken about being bullied mm. so to actually have that shape who you become as well is quite key I think to your journey
2: yeah absolutely and I think it's those social stereotypes that we're supposed to conform to and and I've said it before you you're telling little girls straight away at school that it's netball it's hockey or it's athletics or it's rounders you don't put them in football so you know PE at school school has a big influence if I go and try and buy Tilly a football kit or a pair of shin pads I have to go and buy her small boys So straight away she's told she shouldn't be playing the sport because it's not children's sizes; it's boys' sizes, you know. And they're they're all the things that I think subconsciously, you know, children pick up on, parents pick up on, and it's got to change. I'm like, we're in 2019; Mm -hmm. you should be able to play whatever you want, have a go at everything. And it's like, you know, on the flip side, it's netball. Why shouldn't boys play netball? Mm -hmm. You know, and and I, I think everybody should have the opportunity to play everything. Was there a point
1: when you were younger that you thought, actually, I'm not going to do this anymore because I know you're stubborn and I can totally imagine how you were, that that almost drove you on to carry on playing anyway, mm. but you're human and you would have been young. Is there anything that kind of sticks out to you? So at this point, that nearly made, which would have changed your whole life, really.
2: My mum will tell you the amount of times I went home in tears and it was awful, I uh, got called a tomboy, a man, a boy, constantly, and I used to try and dress differently to try and prove that I was. not So I'd put heels on and short skirts, and I was like, "This isn't really me." It, you know, what, can't play football in heels. No, it's very difficult, isn't it? But it was kind of like trying to go against the stereotype of being a boy, but going, "Okay, I can still be a girl, but I can still be good at football." But it kind of—I was a bit of a tomboy. I love playing and climbing trees and being active. But does that make me a tomboy? Or does it just make me an active child? Yeah. You know, and that it was that—that that kind of stereotype and it was, it was awful at times it was horrendous and when you're 10 or 11 or 12 and you don't know who you are and you're trying to fit in and you're trying to find your identity and you're getting bullied for the one thing you're actually good at it's really confusing um, and yeah it, it really upset me at times and I suppose it was probably my mum really going don't let them win don't let them win don't let them win and if I'd have quit they would have won Isn't it strange
0: how children, even at a young age, must be quite perceptive to talent because you're always or a lot of people that I've spoken to have been bullied, have been bullied for the things that they've been good at and that make them special and that make them different and i'm sure that's part of your mothering now is that embrace those things those are the things that are going to set you apart in life those are the things that are going to make you successful
2: yeah absolutely i'm I'm massive on differences you know i I live in a same-sex couple with three children so we have to celebrate difference but also talent you know celebrate talent and one of the ugliest traits you can have in life is jealousy and envy, and I think that's where it all stems mm. from. People get jealous, they're envious, and therefore, rather than work harder to get where you got to, they'll try and beat you down. And that's not ever been my mentality. It's work harder, work harder, work harder, and you know what, you'll get your rewards. Did you get the most stick from the adults, the parents of other kids, or the other kids? Both. I've seen it as a player, and I've seen it as a coach. Um, you know, for me, when I played in a boys' team, that's when I got the most stick from the parents. Uh, the girl. What kind of things? Just saying I shouldn't be playing and it was a disgrace. And then they'd, they'd tell people to take me out and and hit her hard and all this sort of stuff. I thought and you meant take
0: you out of the team. No, not no, take no. You out no.
2: Out. Yeah, like, as in, yeah. So it was one of those, but I was talented. Yeah. So, you know, it was almost like I'm going against the norm. I'm going against the social stereotypes. I'm going against what they believe in. Well, actually, change your beliefs. Yeah. That was, I thought you know I've, that's the only way, and, I, and the only way for me to get people to change their beliefs was keep showing that I could do it and that I wasn't going to be knocked down. The
1: offside rule exclusives are available to download for free via Audio Boom and iTunes. Well, you did keep doing it, and you travelled around a fair few clubs, um, a lot of London-based ones. Was that change out of necessity because of where the women's game was at the moment, or was that change out of ambition?
2: I always moved out of principle um, if I didn't feel like things were right at the club if I didn't think there were certain things that should be done that weren't being done Um, you know I always moved I felt some of it was ambition so Chelsea to Arsenal my first move was definitely out of ambition because Chelsea weren't in the same league Um, when I left Arsenal the first time it was because I was training harder than ever and my opportunities were few and far between and I felt like it was because I was the youngest player rather than you know the player that probably should have had the least opportunities And then obviously when I went to Charlton, they disbanded the team two weeks after the cup final and we were preparing for a World Cup. So I had to move teams. And then from then on, it was all principled decisions based on the fact that I didn't think that things were being done right. And and I felt like if I had to make a stand, it was to leave.
1: Let's just repeat what happened at Charlton because, because the men's team were relegated. The women's team went
2: and you were told with how much notice? we just played in a cup final two weeks before in front of a record crowd and then the manager texted us two weeks later just to say, I've been in a meeting, we no longer have a team. And we were four weeks away from going to China in 2007 and competing in the World Cup. And unfortunately,
0: that's not a one-off story. Um, How long would it take you to come to those decisions? And this is me trying to get into you a little bit. And do you make decisions quite quickly and then you... You go with them. You've made your mind up. No regrets. Or are you, someone
2: that really is measured and takes that approach. I'm quite measured. I try and think about what consequences it's going to have when I make the decision. What impact it's going to have on the team. I never just walk out. You know, I'm not a quitter. I don't leave. I go. Okay, I, is it going to be better because I've made my point, and therefore by my, me leaving, it makes it better for the rest of the team? Then I, I kind of, I do that um, because I believe in what I believe in. And actually, most clubs I've left have have either got better or or changed in some way. And where do you think that had the biggest impact? Probably Chelsea when I left the second time. Um, But then I think Emma Hayes did an incredible job. She overhauled the club, the funding, the budget now, you know, the support they get. It's, listen, we were wearing kits that were handed down we had no tracksuits. John Terry had to buy them for us you know we didn't have any money um, I was player manager so you look at that then and you look at it now and I think fair play to Chelsea because they've actually listened to Emma and they've invested and they've they've, they've done a fantastic job now and it's pleasing to see I know that you tell your players here at Man United Women that it's important for them to
1: have a life outside football. We know your life outside football is really important. You've got three kids. You've got a lovely partner who Lindsay and I know really well and who is a total gem Mm -hmm. and really supportive of you because you're going on this huge, big journey, this, this, this totally different thing to having a playing career. And it is so different. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Did you have to work around football? Because obviously during your time, it wasn't a, a, a professional game. And we know podiatrists, we know painters and, decor- painters and decorators, we know teachers, you know, all the women playing in, in the game. and I, this th- I still knew, those. <laughs> I <had two. laughs>
2: And this isn't that long ago. Had to
1: have another job. So what did
2: you do? Well, I only turned professional when I was 30. So I always had jobs. And I, was, I left school at 17 with very few qualifications. And I'm not proud of that. It's probably one of my biggest regrets was, actually, I probably should have done better But what I did when I left when I was 17 was I realised football was for me. So I went straight and did my coaching badges um, and I went straight at my level two. I started doing some coaching in the community, started coaching for the clubs that I was working at. I've worked at McDonald's in the drive-thru. I've worked in a betting shop. How long in McDonald's? Come on. I was two years whilst I was at college. Good Lord. And yeah. you're an ambassador. <laughs> I am an ambassador. I've gone, I've gone full circle, yeah. Have you told them about this? I have, yeah, I have. I've told them where I worked and everything, so, yeah. And, I and your picture is on every wall at McDonald's. Look what happens if you start your career at McDonald's. And I worked in betting shops because it meant that I could get up later and we used to train from eight till ten at night, so sometimes when you got home getting up for work was quite difficult. I was a gym manager, so I worked five in the morning till sort of three o'clock in the afternoon shifts and then go training afterwards. Um so I, I always worked and I was lucky I had two years at the David Beckham Academy as well. So, you know, and I've always coached for every single club I've worked at. When I was at Chelsea I was a head of academy there as well. So I've been coaching since I was seventeen. So when people said to me, you know, you're going into management now, I was like, Well I've been doing it. Yeah for nearly 20 years yeah. anyway. It is a natural progression. And of course, if you don't know the
1: women's game that well, it might seem, well, she's an ex-player, she's an ex-England captain. So of course, she's going to try and manage a club now. And it's not about going to try and manage a club, is it? Well, no, and I don't think it
0: helps when in the men's game, because there's always these comparisons, but you had the Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, um, Paul Scholes um, quite recently. And I think people think, oh, they've just had a really good professional career. Now they're just being given this opportunity. So I think it is worth pointing out that you've done your time.
2: Yeah, and I I believe in you have to earn your stripes. You know, I've... I've worked for nothing I've, I've worked voluntary I've coached under fours under fives under six I've done every age group you could possibly imagine and
1: also boys as well yeah I have done
2: yeah. boys I did the boys under 18s Academy when I was at Beckham Academy so I've, I've crossed over you know I've done an awful lot of coaching and even when I was at Liverpool I'd go down and do the development team and that was in my own time no pay no nothing just for experience I've been through my coaching badges I've gone through my a license and you know I've, I've always tried to put myself in a position where I can learn I am learning every single day am I making mistakes? Of course I am, but I'm a big reflector and I don't think you grow unless you make mistakes. And I am a perfectionist, so that probably goes against me a little bit, but it always makes me want to be better. Let's talk about that tweet, Kate, because we were coming
1: up on the train. I love love it. this tweet, Kate. Hang on. Hang on. You won the PFA's uh, Special Achievement Award, totally deserved. And there was a picture of you holding this special PFA plate saying brilliant and that was tweeted from the from the pfa account and this chat replied that plate will look good when you put it in the kitchen where you belong
2: and you thought hang on a minute yeah um the only way i always think to respond to these people is with (laughs) a bit of humor so i said yes it'll look fabulous in my kitchen next to my oven gloves ironing board my four FA Cups, five League Cups, two League titles, European Silver Medal, World Bronze Medal and 130 England caps. It will fit very nicely. Thank you. <laughs> Drop the mic.
0: That was brilliant. Um, of, of course there's going to be these these responses. I mean, even now, watching punditry, female commentators in the men's game, all of the things that have been going on in the last calendar year, for instance. Does it gender your
2: skin when, when you start seeing the vitriol that comes out? Yeah, I think it's unnecessary. Obviously I watch I watch a lot of punditry, so I see Alex Scott, Rachel Brown and, you know, and Alex Scott's doing really well for herself. And it's it's because they're challenging the norms, mm. you know, and that's a good thing. And and also it says a lot about society and where society still is. And I'm like these people that are saying these things and writing these things, you've got mothers, you've got sisters, you've got daughters. You should be treating them equally with respect and with dignity, and and giving them a platform to rise. You know, these people aren't taking anyone's places. They're just doing their job, and if they do it well, then they keep their job. I'm not a, um, I, I'm by no means a person that says a woman should get a job because they're a woman. For me, it's always the best person for the job. And if they're capable of doing their job, then they are. And as a woman in the men's game, you have to be twice as good anyway to even earn the respect. Mm -hmm. You came out publicly
1: as gay. um, And that's another caveat to this as well. It's, you know, women trying to progress in what men perceive as a men's game. Mm -hmm. But it's also being openly gay as well and being happy to announce that and throwing that into the mix too. Do we need to keep talking about it, about how many gay people are within the game or are not coming out within the game and also the progression of women's football and the fact that we need to keep pushing it forward or just do we need to get on and do it in other words is there too much chat sometimes around these subjects and you think for god's sake just just let me get on with it
2: I'll be honest i just i'm at the point where i go let's just talk about performance let's talk about how the girls are getting on let's talk about the league let's talk about how we can push women's game forward because it's boring Mm -hmm. it is boring yeah I'm gay so what it's just a part of me it isn't me it's part of me and I've got three beautiful children I live in a family you know where I'm fully supported and yeah I came out and that was probably something because a journalist asked me to and I thought at the time I was England captain I had the ability to make a positive impact Mm. uh, you know by doing it but now I'm just like I'm a football manager and I'm a mum yeah,
0: but I, I mean, I remember that coming out at the time in 2014, and it really blew up. It, it felt like, and I've I know women's football. You are not the first gay footballer in women's <laughs> football,
2: but it felt like that was what it was. Poster girl. It was a it was big news, but to everyone who knew me, they were like, "Is this is this a story?" You know? And I was like, "Well, no, it's not." But to everyone that didn't know me, it obviously was, and it was kind of a way of trying to use what I had as a platform, really, to try and send a few clear messages in society. But now I'm like, let's move on. And and, and when we talk about the male game all the time, I'm like, it needs to not be a story for people yes. to be able to feel comfortable mm-hmm. to do it. But
0: of course, with the first male that is a professional, I know that
2: down the leagues it's
0: happened, but in terms of the Premier League, for instance, or the Championship, the yeah, even the oh. 92 League Clubs, the first will will still make headlines. But part of your story and one that, it must feel nice to have that freedom to talk about is that you found love doing what you love mm. you know you and Megan met when you were at Lincoln and so many people meet at work we know that we know it's going on in the men's game but just people just don't want to talk about it
2: yeah I think it, people meet at work every single day and it was by chance and I always think things happen for a reason I left Chelsea I went to Lincoln I met Meg's and you know that that for me the rest is history and I'm like, if you're doing your job and you meet someone, if if you're in a reception job, or you're in an office, or you're doing anything else, you're working in a supermarket, no one bats an eyelid. So it shouldn't no. really be any different no, in no. terms of team sports.
1: We have film stars, we have comedians, we have so many people in the world who are living as a gay person. It's just not a big deal. But you get someone like Olivia Giroux last year saying it's impossible to be openly homosexual in football. So he's saying it's impossible. That's that is a a top flight Premier League player declaring publicly it's impossible to come out as homosexual in football. That's where the damage is, right? Because how on earth are you, as a kid coming through the game, how on earth, he's your role model and that's what he's saying and he's not the only player to say it as well. So what needs to happen to break the taboo? Do, should we just get on with it and try and
2: forget it or does something need to happen? Does there needs to be some sort of change. I think it's, 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 it's a very personal thing coming out. So no one can tell anyone to come out. No one can do it for you. It's, it needs to be your decision. And in the men's game, unfortunately, no one has felt brave enough or the need to. Some might be happy with the way they are and they don't want to affect their life. They're quite happy going about it as they are. They don't want the media attention. But, you know, who knows if it's impossible because no one's done it. Mm-hmm.
1: Today in Focus is the new daily podcast from The Guardian. Every day we bring you the best stories from our journalists around the world. Subscribe now to Today in Focus from The Guardian for your essential dose of news and analysis. And right now, Today in Focus is supported by Dell Small Business. Dell Small Business Technology Advisors give you the tech, advice and one-on-one partnership you need to grow your business. To find out more, head to dell.co.uk slash smallbusinessadvisor. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Offside Wall TV, for exclusive video football content.
0: Let's talk about a bit of the crossover with the men's game, because you've worked with some high profile figures from the men's game. So Phil Neville, who's now the highest profile in the women's game by being England uh, Lionesses manager. You worked under him. You've also, I believe, had chats with Gareth Southgate. You went for dinner with him and, and, and talking
2: about how to get that team camaraderie. Do you really value those conversations, first of all? I think any conversations with people in the game are valuable, you know, whether it's Gareth Southbate or whether it's an academy coach that's been working in the game for 20 years, because I think you can pick up something off everyone and you can learn. And my, I'm looked after by the same management as Gareth, so we always go for dinner at Christmas and I'll always, you know, pick his brains. And at the time he was kind of picking mine as well because it was a couple of years ago and what we were doing in England and what the differences were. And I was saying a lot of what we do might not work in the men's game, but there's certain things you might be able to drip in. And, you know, as, as for me, I'd always try and open up conversations and learn because what can we take from the men's game that we can use in the women's, and what can they take from the women's game that yeah. they can use in the men's? And, you know, I think it was, it opened up Phil's eyes when he first got the job and what he could say, what he couldn't say, what he needed to do. And listen, it was great, you know, great three, four months working with him and getting to know him as a person, you know, because he's, he's a really good guy. Did you find yourself having to introduce him
0: a lot to, to much of the game? Because he openly said, I, I don't know it inside out, but I will make sure I do. And now he, it's well reported that he's sending WhatsApp groups between coaches at mm-hmm. sort of five, six in the morning. He's constantly thinking of ideas. So he's he's thrown himself into this role with gusto. But someone like you, I imagine, was was that link, that
2: bridge between what he didn't know and what he now does. I think the FA and obviously Phil feel quite clever, really, in terms of bringing me in them first few months to be alongside him because I'd been in the team for 18 years Mm -hmm. I knew that set up like the back of my hand I knew international football I knew all the teams all the opposition and I knew everything to look out for I knew knew the, the do's and the don'ts in women's football and you know, even terminology, things you might say in the men's game that you just don't say in the women's game, you know. So I loved I loved the time with him and I tried to help and support him and what he needed to be aware of. But he's he's his own man and he's thrown himself in it massively. And credit to him, I knew that because just before I left he, he set up thirty WhatsApp groups with every single player. <laughs> and I thought, Oh no, I'm gonna have notifications all over the place here. So yeah, and he watched it, even the other day he said he watched our Leicester game online. So he's he's watching games from America when the girls are playing over there. He's he's constantly Constantly watching it because he's learning about every single player and team, and you know I I think credit to him, he's he's really taken it seriously. You were with him
1: for a short time, really, before Manchester United came calling. Why the decision to move so quickly, and was there a realization at international level that you were a great help to him? in terms of knowledge of the game, in terms of the resource that you could provide, but
2: perhaps that wasn't going to be the best move for your career. Completely. And I, I listen, I had really, really open and honest conversations with Phil. For my first job, it wasn't quenching my thirst because I wasn't on the grass every day. I wasn't working with players every day. And that void in between international camps, I was really struggling with. You know, you're planning a lot, but I was like, I'm not really... I am planning, but I'm not, I'm not doing anything. That was kind of... And I was getting frustrated. So when the opportunity came to apply for this job, obviously he knew it. He, he knew the club better than I did and he knew it would be quite a good fit for me and he encouraged me to, to go for it. Brave decision, because this is something that hasn't existed
0: before. So when you're given a blank canvas, there must be a part of that role that you find exciting because you're getting to put completely your footprint on it, but also equally daunting. I mean, it took you a few weeks and you got to assemble a whole team and backroom staff. Are these things that you were already thinking about, even putting that application down, you're already brains whirring of where you're going to go with this? Or were you coming in
2: thinking, ah, (laughs) <laughs> well, obviously, when I, I, I put my application together for the job, went for the interviews, the first thing I did is I'd done my application and then I was already forward-thinking again. Who am I going to get? What am I going to do? And there was part of me going, oh, my God, this is huge. <laughs> you know, you sit down, you've been told you've got the job, and you're right. oh, I've got four weeks to assemble 21 players, all my backroom staff, and put everything in place. We're sort of six months into that journey now, I suppose, but... It's your first job in
1: management. It's this club's, you know, OK, they had a women's team many, many moons ago, but this is the first time that they're making a full professional, honest go of it, I yeah. suppose. This is going to be or would be a very public failure if it didn't work for the team, for the club and also for you as well. But that's all right. How do you handle that? How do you, how do you get your head around
2: that? Because it's pretty big if it goes wrong, right? failures never entered my head and I have to be honest never never once would I let this fail I work too hard I've got fantastic support around me in the club my backroom staff are incredible so it was never going to fail and we've put an awful lot of work into those 21 bringing them closer together doing a lot of stuff off the pitch to make sure that we grow them bonds and that we're out there and and we do an awful lot of work on the training pitch you know we're clear on the way we want to play they work hard my philosophy is the train is going. You get on it and you come with us and the way we want to go or you get off. Fair play. And when you knock
1: up results like 7-0 against another championship side and when you play a WSL1 side so a top league side like Brighton and the golfing class there really was was obvious in that FA Cup tie managed by your old England manager as well. Yeah. We know that that train's going so that's awesome. Let's let, let's talk about the England career. Mm. There was a point when you nearly retired and I never knew this until I started researching you a little bit more today. Just Take us back to that. Take us back to the England career that nearly wasn't.
2: Yeah, I think it was 2005, really. I'd played a few games, quite a few games, leading into European Championships, and then I was working really hard. And then European Championships came and went, and I didn't play a single minute. You know, I was an unused substitute, and I remember sitting down after that and just probably sulking, uh, being angry at everybody, angry at the world. And actually probably took me a little while to realise that what I was doing wasn't enough. And there was a time when I thought about quitting, I thought about walking away from it because I thought oh, I'm doing all of this and I'm not getting anywhere. And I changed everything. I changed my approach, my mentality. And, and my mentality from that day onwards has been no matter what my talent is, I'll outwork everybody. You know, and I'll work harder than I, and I'll be more focused and I'll be more determined and I'll be more diligent in my prep. And I think I've carried that over as a manager now, really. But it, it paid, paid off for me because, you know, where I, I didn't play a minute, in the home tournament in 2005. I went to 2007 and was one of only four players to play every minute in the World Cup, one international player of the year off the back of it. And then my career went from there, really. You went to the Olympics,
1: and, and, and this is where women's football, I suppose, comes into the conversation for a lot of football fans, because, you know, we know the game's been going on for decades. We know the work that has gone into it and the times it failed and had to come back again and, 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 and all the different guises that women's football has been under and all the different leagues. Um, and I suppose when we're talking about public perception and, and kind of general football fans knowledge, they look at the Olympics in 2012. And of course, they look at the Women's World Cup in 2015 as well. Um, what did it feel like for you? And I suppose we can, we can look back on it now. You know, it's every student writing to us saying, I'm writing a paper about how much women's football's changed over the years. And they start with the Olympics and, and then they go on to the World Cup. But it's an important conversation to have because you were there throughout the lot of it. So was the turning point 2012? How did it turn? And where's it gone? Has it gone bigger, much
2: quicker than you thought? I think 2012 was a catalyst because of the fact that you had to ballot for tickets. So you got what event you got. So 72,000 people came and went, oh, they can play. (laughs) You know, and it was on the telly. So, but I have to credit all the women and all the people that have been in the game all the years before that fought for everything. Mm -hmm. You know, when Hope Powell got that job, we had nothing. She fought for central contracts. She's changed the structure of the game. She got the WSL up and running. Without any of that, we didn't have a full-time league, you know, and people didn't have to work. So I think for me, it was a catalyst. 2015 for me was a byproduct of everybody being full-time. Yeah. All of our players were full time then. It's no coincidence we go to the following World Cup and we do well because every player's full time, and that's because of what Hope Powell put in place. You know, and all the you know, I, I think of the Kaz Walkers, you know, the Karen Burks, the Pauline Copes, all of those that worked jobs, did the same thing, didn't get a single penny, represented their country. They did all of that so that we can be where we are now. After Hope Powell, and we know that she put a lot
1: into the women's game, but she was quite if I can say this, single-minded in her approach?
2: Yeah, I'd say that she was direct, single-minded, and it was Hope's Way. And you either went with Hope's Way or you weren't part of it. And, you know, I I learned quickly to do that and and I became her captain in 2011 and obviously in 2012. So, you know, for someone that, you know, probably wasn't having me for for three or four years, to earn her respect was probably one of the biggest things I'd done in my career. Um, And she started to realise how hard I was working and appreciated it and then obviously realised that I had leadership qualities so gave me that captaincy and, you know, I had to make sure that the messages from her got to the team and vice versa, which was which was difficult sometimes.
0: Changes keep being implemented all with the right motive, which is to get women's football to that next level. But are all of them great? I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts on the, the shift from the Summer
2: League to the Winter League because there was a lot of raised eyebrows at the time. Is it working? I think... The attendance figures will say it's working because Manchester United have come into the league and therefore the attendance figures have increased. But I think if you take Manchester United out, the attendance figures will be down.
0: So actually, is that a bit of a a false figure for for people in offices um, to say, actually, it's working, when really, if
2: you take that out of it, perhaps it isn't. I think the stuff I've read, it's the attendances are down. The, the problem you always had with the Summer League was the breaks that you had to have during major tournaments, and there was inconsistencies around it. So it's very difficult to, to have a Summer League when you've got a break for six weeks mm. every time. For me, I like the Summer League because I hate the cold. My family like the summer league because you can take the kids out, you know, and you don't have to hide them away in the cold. And so I think sometimes the attendances are down because of the weather. We're having games postponed now because of the weather. Um, And it comes with its challenges that were there before. Um, But I suppose you don't know again until you try it. So it's whether we try it for a few years and go back again. I don't know what the answer is. Also with the challenge with the summer league is... Because we all ground share, the men's teams need to rest their pitches to reseed and relay them. That becomes a difficult part as well in terms of getting grounds to play on. So everything has its challenges, but it's about, for me, investing in your marketing and your commercial strategies, especially your marketing, to let people know where you're playing, when you're playing, and get people in the grounds. And one of the main remaining frustrations must be fixtures,
0: because... I've worked in the game. I, I worked for solid seasons for about seven of them. Um, and now I, I come in and do little bits. But I never know when, even if I'm following one team, I never know when they're playing. And You know, it used to be Sunday at two o'clock. We'd know there might be women's football happening. But you can't have that now. And then you'll have three fixtures in a week. And then you'll have three weeks break. It feels like there isn't a consistency for a supporter, a, a women's football supporter, to be able to say, that's when I can go and watch
2: the women play. And does that still aggravate? As a head coach, it definitely does now because we'll have, we were supposed to have seven games in 20 days and then a three week break. So you can't get any momentum. And that's very, very difficult for the head coach and the players, but then also the supporters. I kind of get the coming away from the two o'clock at Sunday rule. Because for me, you need more flexibility because otherwise if you're kicking off at two o'clock on a Sunday and the men are kicking off at two o'clock on a Sunday, you don't want to kick off at the same time. So you need the flexibility to be able to change it. But it's how you get your message out. That's the most important. How am I going to get my message out to my fan base to know where we're playing, when we're playing and what time so that the fans can come? And you need to make it an incentive for them. It needs to be reasonably priced. It needs to be a good day out and people want to come. And, And the differences between the women's game and the men's game, they can engage with the players. I want to talk about Mark Sampson
1: and him leaving the setup. He was very different, obviously, to Hope Powell. And Lindsay and I experienced that during the World Cup in 2015, just what a different shift in mentality he brought and a modern approach, a much more modern approach to the game. Um, and he undoubtedly was a success whilst he was in charge of the women's team. But the headlines around him leaving and the racism aimed towards some of the female players Did that do the women's
2: game harm? Was that blown out of proportion or was it a necessary conversation to have? I think it's always a necessary conversation to have, isn't it? If if there's an issue and a player feels like that's happened, the the positive thing that's come out of that now is there is a process in place. If any player's got an issue and they feel they need to or they want to talk, they know now where they can go. And I think that is a huge positive that came out of that situation. I mean, at the height of his success before all that happened, he was being talked about
0: as potentially coming in, I think it was a League One team in in the men's pyramid. And of course, these things that happen first, first to do this, first to do that, you've done a lot of them. (laughs) Um, People are starting to bring your name to the front now for that because they're saying, right, who would be the first female to potentially coach a men's team? And it would be such a huge barrier, I think, Um, And it's one of those things that I think could change the landscape for the game. Would you be up for it?
2: It would be a huge barrier to change. Would I leave Manchester United? No. Would I go into men's football where you've got a tenure of over a year with three children to support? No, you've got no stability. They change things so quickly. I'm at a fantastic club with an amazing group of players with a journey to go on. For me, I'd love to be here for many, many more years. Um, and then maybe if I'm financially secure, then I'd take the risk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, that's, but that's terrible, isn't it? That it's basically a risk. It's a risk enough that, that a woman puts themselves forward for a job where they know they, you know we know they're going to get sick, yeah. because that's the way it is at the moment. and it is changing, of course it is, but we know they're going to get sick. We're also taking a risk because, because that's not a secure livelihood, no. being the coach of a men's team. I want to just talk very, very quickly about the differences between coaching men and women. Um, because it's important because all these people are saying it should be equality in the game you should treat them all the same but it isn't the same right?
2: No it's not and men and women are different so you have to treat them differently football's football when I coach the players I'm coaching players but it's the conversations you have it's the language you use it's the emotional intelligence that you need with a female player Um, because and the difference is men might be feeling things but they won't talk about it whereas women need to talk about it so you need to be open to that and you know
0: (laughs) Are you a counsellor?
2: You're everything when you're a head coach you are but also at the club we've got support networks where we can make sure that players have got that support we've got a well-being coach we've got um, a psychologist at the club so we can make sure the players get that support and it's important and girls need to feel a bond they need to feel that togetherness they need to feel like they're part of something the difference is you tell a boy to do something they'll do it they won't ask any questions the girl will do it but she'll want to know why she's doing it and how it's going to make her better and sometimes you know we we, we say as coaches women are quite literal so if you say, we want you to stay wide, they'll stay wide every time when it's actually on to coming field. So you have to paint a lot more pictures with it. But, and also they haven't had the football education growing up in the playground, part of academies professionally every day. So sometimes you have to make sure that the language you use is simple, that you explain everything because they haven't had the football education that the boys have had. World Cup year. Exciting. France, um, what sort of role are you going to be playing? Are you going to be doing anything? I am working, yes. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be doing some punditry. I'm going to be over there. Um, I would be going anyway because I'd want to go and watch games and also I'd want to go and scout and see potential players that you know might be of interest to us. And also, I'm a huge England fan. Mm. It's not going to change. You know, I... I, I I'm so patriotic. I want my country to do well. And, and some of them are f- my, my friends still in there. And I want them to do. And, and ultimately, I want Phil to do well. He's my friend now. And I want that team to go there and be successful. And, you know, I, I'm going to get to go and watch loads of different games and different styles. And, you know, I never watch it as a fan because I can't. I'm always picking it apart and seeing what people are doing strategically. But something I'm looking forward to. And what is success for England? A semi final. I think it has to be. The previous World Cup was a semi-final, so I think we need to be aiming to get there. Are the, are the players capable? Yeah. But you need luck in tournament, you need fit players, you need players in form, um, and sometimes the draw can help you too. Well, let's wrap it up there by saying that we hope that
1: success continues in your career as well in this new venture uh, with lots of exciting things ahead and that there's a place in the top flight of women's football for Manchester United women.
2: Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Offside Rule Exclusives is produced by Offside Productions and edited by Lucy Lavery.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? (sighs) Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.